guys can grab a seat. I don't know why, so I, okay, my name's Connor. I work with middle schoolers. We do a countdown timer, and recently, so, sorry, this just happened so quickly in my brain. Recently, we started counting down from 10, and then the students yell a random holiday of their choosing, like Happy New Year in September. Um, it's a great thing. I almost did it and embarrassed myself, and now I'm embarrassing myself by talking about it, so I'm sorry Happy about New that. Year. Happy New Year, amen. Amen, I love it. Well, uh, my name's Connor. If I haven't met you before, I'm not like another Pastor Brian on staff, so don't worry. You don't have to try to remember one more Brian's name, but uh, I get the joy and the honor of uh, serving with middle school students here at Calvary Community Church, and I just love it. It's so much fun. For some of you, you hear middle school, and you start like sweating profusely because of your memories there, and some of you like have like all these things start flooding through your brain, and you're like, Connor, no, why have you done this, right? But like for me, middle schoolers are like the greatest humans this world has ever seen, and they get a really bad rap, like they are way nicer and way more wonderful than you could ever imagine. And so I get the joy of, of hanging with them. So I'm a little bit like out of my comfort zone hanging with you guys tonight. But here, here's the thing that I've realized recently as I've grown up, is that um, the older I get, the more I realize that like I'm the same and we are all the same that we were when we were in like seventh grade. <laughs> like we've grown maybe mildly, right? Like there's maybe a few attributes that hopefully we've grown in, like maybe a little bit more self-awareness, sometimes more self-control, but let's be honest, a lot of times not. And then like the one thing that's like almost guaranteed that we've grown in is like bodily hygiene practices. So that's a good thing and we love it. But like other than that, we're, we're pretty similar to middle schoolers. So I feel maybe a little qualified to talk to you. I take that as a compliment, not as a dig. Remember, high, middle schoolers are up there. So like, raising the bar a little bit. But anyway, so um, I, I feel qualified maybe to talk to adults, but uh, college students in particular, anyone in college here? <laughs> that was so good. Woo, I love it, I love it. So man, I just think middle school and college like blends together in this weird way. And this is a compliment. I say I'm, I'm the, the wooer over here. It's a good thing. It's a beautiful thing. So maybe you don't believe me. So here, let's do a quick thought experiment. So close your eyes, close your eyes, and then just start to put a picture in your mind of who this is. I'm going to give some, a description of a person and start, start just to, to, to put the pieces together, put this puzzle together. Here we go. This is the description of a person. First, they're experiencing academic challenges like they've never experienced before. Like, like school just got taken up a notch and they're like, whoa, wasn't ready for this. So academic challenges are, are rising. They're, they're pulling away from like the, the, the family structure. Like their, their, their relationship with their parents is like kind of getting weird. It's just changing, it's different. There's like social dynamics that have completely changed and so there's new friend groups and new people that they're meeting and they're trying to figure out who they are and who they like and who they want to be. And then there's, <laughs> I knew I was going to giggle before even reading this one. So there's like a level of sexual tension that is unbelievable and unexpected that people didn't see coming. So who do you have in your mind? Am I describing a seventh grader or a freshman in college? The answer is yes. So, so I, I, I feel maybe like college students, I can talk with you if you're out of college. You, maybe you just leave. I don't know. No, just kidding. Please don't leave. That would really hurt my, my feelings. But anyway, so um, welcome to church. So glad that you guys decided to join us 
tonight. And so while I'm talking about middle school, I'm going to share one quick story, if you don't mind. We were at middle school camp just a couple weeks ago where we take a bunch of students. Um, we go to cabins, and we hang out with each other, and we play crazy games, and we worship God and have teaching, and it's wonderful. And so um, we had the joy uh, of going this year. That was we're so thankful, because like eight months ago, it was like, what's going to happen? And so we're at camp, and one day, I'm, um, I'm a little frustrated, because like my role, I, I, like there was just like three things back to back that kind of were like irritating that I didn't see coming. And one of them, I just got out of this conversation with someone who called me that wasn't at camp. And I was like, I was kind of getting frustrated. And so I was, I was sitting there and I was angry. And this student, let's, let's call him Jack. Jack walks up to me. He's like, yo, Connor, man, chapel, it's been pretty crazy, man. Can we talk? And I was like, oh, Yes, we can, right? And I was like, thank you, Lord. So we sit down, and this is like the most articulate middle schooler I've ever talked to in my life. And so Jack and I, we sit down, and he starts like, literally, he's like, man, Connor, like I've put my faith in Jesus. Like my hope is in the death and resurrection of the Messiah. And man, like sometimes sin comes my way and temptation, I still fall to it, but I want my hopes in Jesus, and I'm getting mad at myself, and I have this guilt and the shame, what do I do? And I was like, that was the wisest thing a student has ever said to me. You know, like I'm sitting there and I was like, yes, like this is awesome. This kid's talking about it. And so while we're talking, he starts to cry to talk about some of the difficult things going on in his life. And as I'm having this great conversation, another student, let's call him Nick. Nick walks up to me and kind of interrupts. Um, remember uh, self-awareness, talking about that. So he kind of interrupts, like the kid's crying. I'm like, hey, uh, give us some space. And so he uh, is like, hey, uh, Connor, can we talk? And I was like, yeah, like, give, give me a moment. So I finish this conversation. I pray and I'm like, thank you, Lord this is amazing. Like, and I'm encouraged. Oh, this is why we're at camp, right? And so I go, I find this other student, Nick, and I see he's sitting with some friends. And he, he sees me, he kind of gets up and he's like, hey guys, I'll catch you in a bit. He leaves his friends to come talk with me. Uh, there was a table nearby and we sat down and I was like, whoa, like a middle schooler in the middle of free time choosing like zip line with friends or Connor and he hung out with me, like this is a big deal, right? And so I'm like, cool, like, thank you, Lord. Here we go, another blessing. And so we start talking and I'm like, Nick, what's going on, man? Like, how's your heart? Because I just had this emotional conversation with this articulate student. So he goes, yeah, Connor, I gotta be honest with you. Um, chapel's, been, um, chapel's been a lot. Like, it's been a lot because um, like, it is, it's way too long. It is way too long. He said, I promise you, Connor, if you make me sit through one more chapel, I will be further away from Jesus because it's so boring. Word for word, this is what he said to me. And so I'm sitting there and I was just crying with a student and I have one kid going, I promise you, you make me go to a chapel, I'm running from Christ. And I'm like, oh, like, what do I do? You know, and I'm just like kind of hurt because I'm like, oh, like, I thought chapels were kind of cool. You know, like this is a good time. And like, ouch, that, that hurts my little heart. But then at the same time, like I, I kind of laughed, right? Like I, I chuckled because it's funny because for me in that moment, it was, it was very relatable. Like, like he said this and I was frustrated, but there, I had many like flashbacks in my mind in this moment where somebody wanted me to experience Jesus in some way. Like there's been times in my life where God has been like calling to me. People have been reaching out to me. I've had many Christian influences that are beautiful and good in my life. And there've been times where I just want to reject it. Like there are times in my life, it was so relatable because I know the wickedness of my own heart. And so I, I could laugh with him because I, I knew and I saw myself that, man, I've been following Jesus for a long time. But sometimes it's difficult. And sometimes it's hard because I start to fall into past sins that I've struggled with. 
Like, I, like I've done, said, and thought things before that like, I'd be ashamed to even begin telling you stories about. And so I, I, here's the thing, though. I, I don't think I'm alone. I, I don't think I'm alone in my Christian walk and having a, a desire to know Jesus, but then constantly struggling with the selfish ambitions of my own heart. Like, I know the older I get, the more that my heart wants to lift up my own passions and desires and emotions and life. And so I, I think, I assume that there's some of you at least in this room who feel the same. And so this is what we wanna talk about tonight. This idea that us as Christians, whether you're a Christian or not, whether you've been going to church since you were a baby or this is your first time on this campus or at a church, welcome, I'm so glad you're here. We're gonna be looking about at and thinking and considering like, what do we do when the pride of our hearts starts to just build up? And we desire to, to look at, uh, make our lives look awesome and, and just submit to like the authority of our own powers and desires and emotions. What do we do as Christians when we realize like, wait, I, I, like I, I'm supposed to love God, but like I, I keep loving myself. What do we do? And so in a moment, we're going to look at Acts chapter 2. But before that, I want to, anytime I get to a new environment, I, I always say these two things because they're helpful for me. If you've been coming to church for a long time, it's probably a reminder. If you're new to church, it just welcomes you into like why we do the things that we do. And here's two things that we believe to be true at Calvary that speaks into the way that we order our services. And, and the first thing is this, that we read God's word because we believe that God is not mute. Like we serve a God who literally speaks to us. And he most often speaks to us through his word. And so we read God's word. We're gonna open it up because we have a conviction that God speaks to us when we read it. Like, like God's word describes itself, and I've seen this in my own life and the lives of my friends and in this church, that it is living and active. Like it is so sharp, it's described, that it pierces into like the deepest parts of who we are, that, that it's, it is useful for training us, correcting us, for righteousness. Like it, it literally says it prepares us for the good works God has, has, uh, has um, or it equips us for the good works God has prepared for us in advance. And so we are going to read God's word because he's not mute. He's a God who speaks to us. And then after that, I'm going to pray. We've already prayed this, this evening. And we pray because here's another conviction. We believe like the God of this universe literally listens to us. That's amazing. It, it becomes this routine of Christian thought. Just we pray before we eat a meal that God would bless it to our bodies and say amen. But when we come to church, I want to pause and, and to, to recognize that, like, I, we, I thoroughly, thoroughly believe, and this church believes, that when we pray in the, the asking for God's will to be done, that he will absolutely hear and respond to it. And so us as a church body, myself included, we're going to hear from God's word, and then I'm going to pray. So I'm going to invite Julian onto the stage. He's going to read from Acts chapter 2. We're going to continue this series looking at the, the beginning of, like, the church, it's the first few pages of what happened after Jesus left. And we see all the things that the Holy Spirit is doing in the lives of the early believers. So let's uh, hear from the word of God from Julian. All right. 
right, guys, first let's rise for the reading of the word. I heard a preacher say this week that if we rise for the president and we ride for a judge in the courtroom, we ought to rise for the reading of the holy word of God. Amen, amen. We're gonna open up to Acts chapter two, verses 36 to 41. Acts chapter two, verses 36 to 41. In the NIV, it says, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to the their number that day. Amen. 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 You may be seated. Thank you, Julian. Come on. Yes. So good. So good. So let's just jump right into verse 36. If you guys were here last week, Pastor Brian Howard uh, talked about like the first Christian sermon that Peter gives. And in verse 36, we pick up at the end. You know, it starts with this word, therefore. And so he, he is concluding what he has talked for like a long time to this group of 3,000 plus people. And this is what he says. Therefore, let all Israel, like he's talking to these people who is Israel. He says, let all of you, would you be assured of this, that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And so he starts off, he wants to conclude his message, both a reminder. He says, I want you to be assured of this, that the person that you killed he has two titles that are very important. He says he is the Lord and he's the Messiah. And so I want us to think about these two titles for just a moment because it seems to be really important to Peter. He says, listen, if you haven't heard anything I'm saying, listen to this. He says that Jesus, the one you killed, is Lord and Messiah. So what is a Lord? A Lord is somebody who has authority, right? Like a Lord is a title, an office given to somebody who has greater authority over somebody else. And so do you see the irony that starts to jump out in the sentence to me as I read it? Like, therefore, let Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, the one who you thought you had authority over, the one that you thought you could control his destiny. Like this Jesus that you killed, he's the Lord. Like he is the one with the authority. You're not in control, God's in control. And God gave that control to his son, Jesus. And it's this like, this irony, this tension in the sentence. He goes, listen, you thought you had control over Jesus, but he is the Lord. He has the authority, he has the power, he's in control. And not only is he in control of what happens in this earth and like how he interacts with people, but he has authority over the greatest fear humans has ever seen, death itself. Like the Jesus that we worship is not just some guy who died on the cross, but we worship a God who showed himself to have authority over death itself and he rose from the grave. And so when he says, the one you crucified, he's Lord and you've seen it with your own eyes, you've experienced it, right? Like our lives are changed. And he says that he is the Lord. 
He is the one who has authority. He, was, he is the one who is in control. And then he gives him the second title, this word Messiah, which is in uh, Hebrew is kind of the translation we have for Messiah. Greek, it's Christ. So you've heard of like Jesus Christ, right? Like not his last name. It's a title. It's an office. And this word Messiah packs a punch for the people listening. For us today, it's like, uh, I don't really know what that means, right? Like, like it's like, uh, maybe if you've been coming to church, you've heard of it, but like, it doesn't mean much to us. But to the people he's speaking to, it speaks volumes. The Messiah means this. The Messiah is the, the anointed one. Someone who's been set apart, distinguished, and chosen for a task. And so when he says he is the Messiah, he is the anointed one. And it is a reference that is even more... Um, Beautiful than just an anointing because it has this, this depth of the Old Testament that there's these three offices in particular in the Old Testament where we see time and time again and again that people are anointed. And it's these three offices, the prophet, the priest, and the king. And so anytime there's a prophet in Israel, it is somebody who was anointed. If it was a priest, they were anointed. A king, it was somebody who was anointed. And so Israel for thousands of years, as they were like God's chosen people, were guided by these people in these roles, these prophets, priests, and kings who did pretty well, some of them, did really well, a few of them, and did pretty poorly a good amount of them too. And so th there's this struggle because they're awaiting, like, where is the, the real Messiah? Like the chosen one, the anointed one who is set apart for us. And so when Peter says, this is the Lord who has authority, he's also the Messiah. He's the savior of the world. He is the perfect prophet, the perfect priest, and the perfect king. And so let's explore what these roles are in the Old Testament so we can understand why Peter is telling them this. A prophet is this. A prophet is somebody who represents God to the people. So if you're familiar with like Old Testament stories, maybe you've heard a story or two of, of somebody who might be called like a prophet, like Elijah or many of the books written by prophets. They're in, uh, often written in poetry because it's um, easy for them to remember <laughs> what they said. And it, all it is, is it's God speaking to his people. And so he sets somebody specific apart, goes, this person, Elijah, is going to speak to the people. So it's like a representative from God to his people. And we see many times Elijah and Elisha, and, and sorry, many others who are anointed. The, the priest is a similar role, but it's kind of like the, the opposite of the prophet. The priest is, is not someone who represents God to the people, but they represent God's people to the Father, right? Like, like it is somebody who represents people to God. And so particularly in the Old Testament, we see these stories and this like long drawn out specific tasks and roles and attire that priests wear because it's really important because they are going and saying, hey, Israel, I'm going on your behalf to go to God. And like the, the reality is like you've sinned, you've messed up, you're kind of filthy and messed up. Like God can't just accept you. And so I'm going to represent you to God. And so they performed these rituals, these sacrifices of animals where blood was shed for the forgiveness of sins. And so a priest is somebody who represents sinful people up to God. And the king is a different role. It's a different role because in Israel, God said, there isn't a king because I'm the king, <laughs> right? He's like, remember Lord? He's like, I have the control. And then Israel was like, eh, but we want a king. And he's like, no, you don't. And they're like, but please. 
kings? And he's like, okay, yeah. And then he sent Saul and it was horrible. But anyways, so he sends these kings and, and we see these time and time after again, the Old Testament, king after king, some of them really, really cool. Most of them not. And so uh, there are these kings and their role in Israel as the anointed one, as like the Messiah, this, this, this chosen role is, to, is somebody who exercises God's authority. Like God is the Lord. He's the one who has it. But the king kind of represents God, but not like vocally like the prophet, but he exercises it. And so he, he brings judgment to the people and, and, and helps God to do the things that, he, uh, that, that is supposed to be happening to his people. And so we see that Jesus as the Messiah is a powerful, powerful phrase. Because he says, yes, Jesus, the one you killed, he's Lord, he has authority. But not only that, he's the Messiah. He's the anointed one. He's the perfect prophet. He's the one who's spoken on behalf of God perfectly. He's the priest. In, in Hebrews, if you go look, go if, you're look, if you wanna do something later tonight, go read the book of Hebrews. It's beautiful. And so in Hebrews, you will see that, that, that Jesus, this argument laid out that Jesus was actually like the perfect high priest. Because all these other people who are priests representing sinful people to God, well, they were pretty jacked up too. And so they kept making mistakes. And so they couldn't be a perfect representative. And so Jesus was the perfect representative of on our behalf as this anointed, perfect priest. And he also was the king, right? Like he exercised his authority over the, the winds and the storms of the water when he spoke and the winds died down. He exercised his authority over nature, over demons when he casted them out. He exercised his authority over water again when he decided to walk on it, right? Like Jesus is the perfect king. He enacted justice, brought justice to the people when things had been made wrong and he was making them right when he rebuked the hypocritical Pharisees. Jesus is the perfect Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one chosen to be a perfect uh, speaker on behalf of God representative on our behalf and the king who exercises authority and brings justice to his people. Do you feel the weight of these titles? Peter wasn't just saying some words because they sounded good. He concludes his message with two specific things, with this weight that Jesus is the Lord, he has the authority, and he's the anointed one that we have been waiting for and hoping for. And so um, it, it, here's the thing, though, as we... As we think about this passage. Like Israel in that moment, I think I would be like sweating a little bit, right? Like, can you imagine Peter gets up in front of 3,000 people and boldly proclaims? He's like, hey, the Messiah we've been waiting for, you killed him. <laughs> like, I'd be like, oh gosh. Like, like Israel's like freaking out probably in that moment. They're sweating and they're in their boots. What's, that's not a phrase. What, what, what phrase was I looking for? Shaking in your boots? What did I say? Sweating in your boot? Gosh, come on, Connor. Come on, Connor. Sorry, I, with middle school, I like, there's a lot of back and forth, but when I embarrass myself in front of you, I, apparently I sweat in my boots. Anyways, here we go. Uh, uh, <laughs> Peter's talking to Israel, right? But this applies to you and me as well. We're gonna read from Isaiah chapter 53, one of like the dopest passages in the Bible. I promise you, go read it along with Hebrews, I guess, suggesting a lot of things. Here we go. In the prophet of Isaiah, he talks about this, uh, the suffering servant that's to come that we know as the Messiah. And we're gonna see in this passage that you and I are just as responsible. We are culpable for the death of the, the Messiah. 
for the death of the Lord. This is not something that we see 2,000 years ago that we blame on others, but this is a responsibility and a weight that's put on you and me as well. In Isaiah 53, verse four through five, it's in the middle of this poem talking about the suffering servant to come. He says, surely he, being Jesus the Messiah, he took up our pain, he bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, but... He was pierced for our transgressions, right? Like Jesus was put on the cross because of your sin and mine. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, our sin, the evil things we've brought into this world. The punishment that brings us peace was laid on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. This message that Peter is giving it's not some message to 3,000 people a long time ago, but this is a message that applies to you and me as well as we sit into this, this idea that the Lord, the one who has authority, and the Messiah, who's a perfect prophet, priest, and king, was killed because what do we have done? And, and, and so I, I wanted to before, sorry, I know I'm talking a lot about this verse. I'm not gonna talk for this long about all the other verses, I promise. So, uh, but before going to this next verse, I wanted to, um, I, I, gosh, I've been just thinking about considering these roles because sometimes I think um, it, if we look back, Jesus was killed for some of these roles, right? The, he would speak on behalf of God and the Pharisees hated him for it. He would enact justice in ways that they didn't like, and so they wanted to kill him. And so they wanted some part of his role, but not all of them. And so it is easy for us to like push this on some people a long time ago, but I think all of us wrestle with sometimes wanting like, like King Jesus, but not wanting the priest Jesus. Or sometimes we want the prophet Jesus, but we don't want the Lord to have authority of our life. And so I wanted to stop and pause and, and think about this. Do you sometimes struggle, or right now in this moment, are you struggling with, wrestling with the desire that Jesus would only fill some of these roles and not all of them? Like, like you don't want him to be the Lord who has authority because you don't want him to make the rules. Maybe you don't want Jesus to be the perfect prophet because you don't trust what he says in his word. Maybe even you don't want him to be a priest and you don't trust that he was a perfect priest because you've actually thought that you've done so much wrong that there's no way that a perfect God could represent a sinner like you. Maybe you don't want him to be king because you don't want him to enact justice in your life. You wanna take control of it yourself. Today, in the beginning, I said that we were gonna be exploring this idea of, of pride and humility and submission. We need to submit to the authority and the power and the offices that Peter says Jesus holds. He needs to be all four of these roles in our lives, the Lord, the prophet, the priest, and the king. And this is what sets up their response. It's important for us to understand that this end of the sermon that, G that Peter gives, that Jesus is the Lord and Messiah, and we can learn from their response, because as I said, it is not just to them, but it is for us as well. In verse 37, he continues, the, the people, they hear this, what Peter has said, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? 
right? Like, I love this response. It's, it's because responding to the gospel is both an intellectual and an emotional experience. Because intellectually, they understand, oh, Messiah, I know what that means and what it's supposed to be like. Oh, Jesus was that? And like, it's this intellectual understanding, but also it says that it cuts to their heart. It doesn't just stay as something that's like cool to think about or some philosophical idea, but it pierces into their desires and their emotions and it forces them to turn to Peter with this question, like, what do we do? Like, I believe you, I trust in you. What can we do, Peter? Like, this is a claim that is large, but it's true. So Peter, what do we do? And you might res- uh, expect Peter to respond in a multitude of different ways. Sometimes I think we should, we imagine that Peter would respond in a way like this. He says, listen, the church is about to start. I need some money because we need to do what Jesus told us to do. Like, so give us your money. We're going to buy food and we're going to go travel the world and proclaim the gospel of Jesus. Or maybe when they said, what shall we do? You expect Peter to respond in a way that says, listen, right? The word of God pierces your hearts. And so he might say something like, read your Bible study it and memorize it, and it'll change the way you experience this world. Maybe you expect his response to be like, there's hurting people and we need to help. And so uh, join me in helping the poor or doing these other things, right? Like sometimes that's what we imagine the first response to this would be. But Peter, yes, those are really good things, but it's not what Peter says. When they ask him, what do we do? How do we respond to the gospel? This initial response isn't just something that leads to pride, right? Like those other things, like my heart wants Peter in this moment to say, hey, do these things, like lay out a game plan and I can do them and then feel good about what I've done. Like like, if that is our hope and our desire, those are things that feed the pride of our hearts to make ourselves look really awesome because like we're trying to figure out like, well, God's pretty cool. So if I make myself look better, I'm a little bit closer or something along those lines. But Peter says, no, this is not about pride. This is about humility and laying yourself down before the feet of the throne. He calls them to humble themselves in submission to the Lord in verse 38. He says this, Peter replied, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't say do something to make yourself look pretty cool. He says live in humility and submit yourself to the authority of God and do two things, two things for people. He says repent and be baptized. And he says, God's gonna do two things for you. He says, he's gonna forgive your sins and he's gonna send the spirit. So it's a very clear, it's a very easy to understand thing. It's like, it's so logical what Peter's saying. He says, listen, Jesus is Lord, has the authority, submit to him, repent of your sins, be baptized and God will give you the forgiveness of sins and guide you by his spirit. And so I want us to to think about this idea of repentance because I think it gets a little convoluted sometimes. It gets a little confusing and it's like, wait, what's repentance? What's confession? Why do we get baptized in a pot of water? Pot, why do I say weird things? Pot, dunk, dunk tank? What do you call it? Tank, bathtub, bathtub horse trough. Anyways, all right, so getting distracted. Here we go. What does repentance mean? 
Like, how can we repent? How can we submit ourselves to the authority of God? Repent literally means to change your thinking, it, like, like to turn. It's like, st- like change the way you think about thinking. Like think differently. <laughs> he, he says to turn, to change the way that you're living, to change the filter that you have to see the world, to turn from your old self and turn to Christ. A shift that stems from humility and submission to God. Different people turn in different ways, right? Anyone watch the Olympics, big fans? Yeah, anyone watch 110 meter hurdles last night? Ouch. Well, I was gonna say something about it, but it's useful, useless. Okay, so Olympics. I didn't watch the gymnastics, but like like maybe a little bit. It's crazy, kind of scares me, so I don't like watching it because I always think someone's gonna break their neck. But like gymnastics, they do a lot of flips, but like they, they spin and it's like, right? Like, weird sound. They spin fast, right? And so sometimes we think of repentance, it means to turn. And so we hear a story of someone's life that's turned like a gymnast. And so we hear some crazy, amazing miracle that God does in somebody's life. And it sounds really drastic because they're like, sometimes these sins that are really easy for Christians to judge and, 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 and like belittle others for, for some reason, acting like greed isn't something that Jesus talked about all the time. And so like, there's these other sins that people have and then they meet Jesus and they turn from that lifestyle. And it's like, boom, right? It's like, whoa, repentance, they turned. They changed the way that they're thinking. And so sometimes, I know for me, I grew up in the church and I was like, I, I don't have a story like that. How can I turn? How can I change the way that I think? And so here's an analogy I think that would be helpful for you because I know it's been helpful for me that repentance isn't just some 180 flip, but it's the process and the commitment of turning towards Christ and imagining like a freight train, right? It's got this, all this weight and it moves slowly, but it's turning. And so, yes, it might not look like a gymnast, but it's a long process of someone turning their life away from themselves and towards Christ. A long, slow process of moving away from our desires and towards submitting to Christ. And so, um, um, uh, repentance is this battle that we constantly live in, this reordering of our will. Do I want more of myself or do I want more of Christ. And so I think this is where confession comes in, this other word that is very similar. Confession is this word that means to agree or to admit or to acknowledge. And so when I first read that, I was like, I'm confused. I thought confession was like, I've made mistakes, forgive me, right? Like, like what am I agreeing to? And so I, I think, uh, we'll get into it in a second, but I think confession is important in this process of turning, this repentance. Like repentance, we're on this journey, we're turning, and, and confession are these moments where we readjust the wheel, where we say, I've started to go off track, and I'm gonna agree with what Christ calls me to, and I'm gonna turn the wheel just a little bit, and I'm gonna turn it back. And so in our lives as Christians, we've repented of our sins. We're on a journey towards looking towards Christ rather than ourselves. And confession is this constant little process of turning from our sin and agreeing in something. Agreeing in what? I think it means agreeing in two ways. Agreeing with Jesus that our sin is more wicked, is a, is a wicked, wicked evil. Confession means saying, Jesus, like, I believe you, my sin is wicked and I've brought death and destruction and evil into this world and it's my fault. 
So I confess my sins to you, that I'm responsible. And sometimes they're really big and sometimes they're really small, but regardless, I agree with you, Jesus, that it matters. So confession means agreeing that your sin is a wicked evil, but it also means agreeing that Jesus has the authority to forgive a sinner like you. It can't be one without the other. And I think sometimes when we seek to confess our sins to God, we struggle with believing both. I know in my life, I have wrestled and I feel like flipped back and forth between these two things I'm trying to agree with Jesus about. Because some of you, I think, agree that you are evil. You have done sinful things. You are stuck in addictions. You've brought death into this world. You've hurt your friends and your family and you've made mistakes. And so it is very easy for you to sit right now and go, yeah, I confess. Connor, this is a weight I carry each and every day. This is not hard. I believe that I am evil, but some of you forget to agree with the second part, to agree that Jesus has the authority over all things, and that means he has authority over your life. And so when Jesus says he's the perfect priest, he's the one who represents sinful people, he's somebody who can represent you. And so when you confess your sins, you admit, yes, God, I have made a mistake, but there's freedom and there's forgiveness in the name of Jesus because the blood that was spilled on my behalf. If you struggle with, like me and so many people, with believing in the forgiveness that Jesus offers, would I remind you of the authority that God has? He's the Lord. So when he speaks, he means it. And so we need to trust that when God says you're forgiven, that means you are. Confession means agreeing with both of these things. And I think some of you wrestle with the other. Some of you, it is easy, and I've been here as well, it is easy to agree. Yeah, Jesus is like really good. He totally forgives me. He has authority. But you start to like, but my sin's not that bad. It's not like a wicked evil. It's just like, I mean, Jesus has forgiven me, right? Like I've confessed, I agree, Jesus has forgiven me. So you just go on living in your sin, not even agreeing or acknowledging or admitting that your sin has brought pain and suffering in this world. And so my, for those of you who are struggling with that, I think the answer, the reminder is the same for you as well. It is not a guilt to be carried that you've done this wrong, but it is you need to reframe, to repent, right? To turn the way you think, to turn and acknowledge that Jesus has forgiven you of that sin as well. And so he will continue to lavish out his grace upon his children if we continue to turn to him in love. And so in repentance, we have the forgiveness of sin and the gift of the Holy Spirit as it continued, right? There's these two things we did. We repented, we'd be baptized, and, and we get forgiveness of sins and we get the gift of the Spirit in our lives. Because Jesus was the great high priest, the anointed one, whose life was the ultimate sacrifice to represent sinners like you and me to the Father, the next step in humility and humbling ourselves before God who has authority over all is to be baptized. There's an opportunity on um, August 15th. I didn't write it down. Sunday? Next Sunday, August 15th, 5 p.m. So there's opportunities at Calvary all the time to be baptized. It's a, it's a humbling and beautiful experience because what you're doing is you're getting in front of the body of church, uh, the, the 
the church, <laughs> the body of Christ, and you are saying, hey, family of God, I want to love Jesus and I'm ready to commit my life to him. Help me out. And so you are inviting this community to say, listen, I need help repenting. I need help turning. I need someone to confess my sins to and pray with me. And so I want to be baptized to tell the world I'm ready to commit myself to following Jesus in humility as he is the authority and I do not. Here's one last thought on repentance. It's this. It's easy for us as Christians and it's easy for me to judge the heck out of other people for the things that they're confessing. It's easy for me to go like, Jesus died for my sins, but that dude is so messed up, right? Like, did you see what he tweeted out in the last however many months? Have you seen what he's said? Like, or that person has done something so horrible. Like, and like us as Christians, we forget that we're forgiven of messed up things. And so we start to like add on judgment to others. And so when we as a community repent and turn and confess, would it be a community that says, I'm not gonna judge you for your sins. I'm gonna try to have the mindset of Christ and remind myself that you are forgiven as well. Let's continue in verse 39. It says this, the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for all, who, for all whom the Lord our God will call. This promise of repentance and baptism and forgiveness of sins and the gift of the spirit that guides our hearts and convicts us of sin and helps us to live in love like Jesus and brings fruit in our life, this promise. It's not only for you, but it's for your children as well. I wonder if there's somebody here tonight who's never repented before, who's never turned to Christ and said, you are God and I am not, you have the authority and I believe that you've taken your authority and given me forgiveness. And somebody here tonight needs to repent for the first time and your life and your family will be changed changed. Peter is calling out that this is not some like one-time decision that happens, but life is changed forevermore. Like when God works in our lives through the gift of the Spirit, as he guides us and helps us to live and love like his son, our world is changed forevermore through maybe our kids or the way that we enact and, and love others and pass on what we have learned to those around us. He concludes in verse 40 and 41 by saying this, with many other words, Peter warns them. He pleads with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized. They humbled themselves before God and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. It's a beautiful ending of the story as a, a community repents. And so I think I've done a disservice to the text when we have read it verse by verse slowly over time because there's something that we have missed. In the English language, we don't really say y'all in Southern California, right? <laughs> My brother moved to Texas and he came back and started saying y'all and I made fun of him. And then after a year, I was like, y'all is an efficient word. <laughs> like it is helpful. Saying you guys when there's only girls there makes me feel really dumb. And I don't know what to say as a Southern Californian. And so I'm all for y'all. I get a little insecure, so I don't really say it, but like, maybe I'm a hypocrite. Am I a hypocrite then? Probably. Anyways, so <laughs> English has done us a disservice because we read this passage and us as Americans, like we make this so individualistic. We, it's like, you repent of your sin. You go get baptized. You go do this. But if we read it, 
we will understand that every single pronoun in the verses we have read today is plural. So every single time it is you all. He's speaking to a crowd and he's speaking to all of them as they would repent as a community and join together under the submission of God who has authority. So read this with me again and notice, be driven by the beauty of the community that comes around in the submission and humility to the Father. It says this, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you all crucified, both Lord and Messiah, when the people, when they heard this, all of them, they were cut to the heart. They said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of all of your sins. You all will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you all and for all of your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them as a community. He pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. He's calling them to humility and submission to God our Father. Those who accepted his message were baptized as a community and 3,000 were added to their number that day. Peter's not speaking to individuals. He's speaking to the church. And so when we think about what it looks like to humble ourselves before a God who has authority, we do it as a community. We do it as a community when we say, I'm struggling with sin and I need to turn from it. Would you help me? when there are people sitting in these chairs that need your help, and there are people sitting in these chairs who will help you as we as a community come together and do what Peter has asked us to do, to say that Jesus is the Lord. He has the authority. He has spoken over me that I am forgiven. I'm gonna put my trust and my hope in him. And when I struggle with sin, I'm gonna confess my sins to my brothers and sisters who are sitting with me here today. So when I'm gonna confess my sins, it's a corporate confession. When it's humility, it is us as a community saying, we're gonna sing songs, not because guitars sound cool, but because God deserves all the praise and the glory and the worship. And so today we are going to, as a community, lift up Jesus and give him the authority that he deserves. And so that's what we're gonna do here in just a moment. So the band is gonna come back up and I'm gonna finish with just one last story. Do you remember where this story opened with talking about my friend, uh, Nick? who interrupted me and said, Connor, if you make me sit in the chapel, I'm gonna run from Jesus. I remember in that moment, I had no perception of the goodness of God and the power that he has. And I was hurt, I was frustrated, I laughed a little bit. And, uh, and chapel starts that night and it's Wednesday, it's the gospel presentation. I'm praying, God, do something. And the first song starts and me and him, we made a deal. I bargained with him. And I said, hey, during the second song of the first set of worship, you can leave, but only the second song, you gotta come back in. And so I'm sitting in chapel and all of a sudden I see in the very first song, Nick gets up and he leaves. And I'm like, oh, no, (laughs) right? I'm like, and I turn to somebody, I'm like, it's only been one song. They're like, yeah. And so I go, I try to find him and, and, and he left. And so luckily he came back during the second song and I said, dude, what the heck? I'm sitting there and I'm frustrated. Like, Nick, (laughs) come on, man, right? And I'm doubting that God is good. And so he goes back into the chapel and that night the gospel is explained and people are given the chance to respond. This is a student who he told me in in his conversation, like, yeah, I go to a Christian school and I go to church on Christmas and Easter, but anything more than that is just annoying and I'm sick of it. 
He says, I, I want to resist God. He's living in his pride. And that night, the gospel was proclaimed. And he was given a chance. What I loved about our speaker, Pastor Katie Langley, as she taught, she said this. She said that sometimes it is more powerful when we've made an intellectual or a heart decision that we would do something physical. We would respond with our bodies. And so she called those who had made the decision to repent, to turn, to change the way that they are thinking, that they would stand up. And as she called students to stand up, Nick stood from the back of the chapel to accept Jesus as his savior, to repent of his sins, and to submit himself before the Father. It was me, yeah, absolutely. But the beauty wasn't done there because then Katie proceeded to say, hey, those of you who are Christians, you don't need a leader or a pastor or an adult to pray over these students because that's what you guys are. You are the disciples. And so as a community, 40, 50, 60 students stayed back at chapel that night to lay hands on, to pray for and pray with other students who had turned to Jesus. And it was a beautiful thing as we experienced the power of the spirit and the life of the church. And so tonight, I'm gonna call us to one of two things as we get to worship God in just a moment. For some of you, you need to sit here and praise the King of Kings as we lift up his name. But for some of you, you need to repent. And I'm not gonna give some big list of sins that are like wrong and we could find in the Bible. We could do that. But I think the spirit of God does what he says and he says that he convicts us of our sin and he reminds us of the grace of Jesus. And so some of you, during this last song, I'm gonna call you, encourage you. There's a prayer wall in the back. There's people who are there waiting to speak with you. And so you can go there and repent. You can turn, you can confess and agree that your sin is wicked and God's grace is greater than you could ever understand. Or you can grab a neighbor. You don't need a leader with a lanyard or a pastor or someone on staff to bring you to Jesus. We are all welcome at the foot of the cross as Jesus says, I have the authority and I've given my authority to save sinners like you. And so for some of you, my encouragement, my call to you is during this last set of worship, you might need to grab a friend and head on out. You might need to make your way to the prayer wall and repent of the things that you have done. To turn the way from the ways you used to think and say, God, I wanna live in humility, help me to do it. To agree that Jesus is in control, that, his, that the sins we have done are wicked, but his grace is so sufficient. We're gonna believe and trust in that. And so would you turn yourself to the cross and the beauty that we have in Jesus. Let's pray as we continue to look to a God that, as we said earlier, actually listens to us. Father, I thank you that 2,000 or so years ago, you inspired a, a man like Peter who's full of sin, who's done wrong things, who's foolish and crazy at times, but you inspired him, God, to, to tell thousands of the joy found in Christ. That yes, the people there were responsible for the death of the Messiah, but that the story didn't end there. That in repentance, 
and entrusting in God rather than entrusting ourselves or our own good deeds, we have freedom in Christ. That there's forgiveness of sins offered to all of those whom you call. And so God, call us right now, Father, by your spirit. Would you soften our hearts? Would your word pierce into the deepest part of our bones, even to to our marrow, Father, as, as we reflect on the goodness of your authority, that you've used it to save sinners like me. So God, help us, God, to have wisdom as we, as a community, humble ourselves before your presence. And whether that looks like lifting our hands, falling to our knees to praise you, God, or whether it looks like grabbing a friend and confessing our sins, God, would the grace of Jesus abound in our hearts and minds tonight. We pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.